When Arsenal knocks on the door of players, it's a different knock than other clubs. Clubs, clubs, clubs. The Different Knock, an Arsenal podcast. Welcome back to Europa League. What Europa League? With Alexander Moneypenny and my very good friends, Bradley Adams and George V. Arsenal are playing the best football of my life. Um, this is the most connected I've ever felt to a football team. This is my favourite time of my football watching and football supporting life. And I think Arsenal are going to win the league. Top of the pod. I've said it. Um, And George, I'll come to you because we've had a question. (laughs) Which was firstly really, will you get off the fence and even say that we're title (laughs) challengers? But I've I've come to this kind of feeling over the weekend, uh, watching us yesterday. Um, a word of the game is joy, which I'll explain more about in a minute. Um, but I'm just, I am absolutely loving this team. It feels so sustainable. It feels so repeatable. It feels connected. It feels together. It's the most uh, vibrant I've ever seen Arsenal Football Club. And I just have a feeling we're going to do it. George? So George, are we, are we going to win the league? You have to, yes or no. That's it. What we're asking for George is, are we even in the race? (laughs) (laughs) No, exactly. Um, Well, I think I've said since Everton, I've had this feeling of, I've seen a lot from the team in terms of a few questions that I had originally, which was even as far back as I think Liverpool, where people were saying we should win the league based on our early season form. I always had questions about, A, how will the January transfer window go? I always felt we wouldn't do that marquee. That was always a question mark for me. Then it was a matter of, do we have enough goals in this Arsenal team to compete with a City team? Which I always struggled to see, which was kind of linked to January. And then it was, do you have an ability to kind of sustain your method of play if a key member of staff leaves? Because in the last two years, that has been kind of the detriment of winning our objectives. When you look at either Europa League or you look at achieving top four, Injuries have kind of derailed our ability to complete those objectives in the past. And so those are kind of the questions where I felt going into the season, did we have enough that I was confident to overcome all three of those questions? And the simple answer was no. And then as you kind of gone on throughout the season, you kind of look at Everton. um, The big question mark for me was looking at how Jesus responds to injury, because do I think that we can compete in the title with Jesus in the run in? Uh, not being available? The answer is no. Like, I I needed to see that. And of course, without injuries, no one can be like 100% predictive, you know, but to not not be on the fence, I've said for a while, I think we're going to do it. And now that I've seen Jesus not have a bad reaction to kind of re-entry, I do think that Arsenal are going to win the league. And I think it comes down to not so much the quality for me, but a, a lot more of it comes down to kind of this idea that we're resistant to change. And and when you have a look at kind of Crystal Palace and you look at maybe word of the games there, um, free flowing kind of comes to mind. Um, And I I think that we haven't been free flowing in the past two months, but that hasn't affected us. And so when you do have a look at it, it, it becomes very difficult to kind of knock an ability of 
Arsenal to win the league or not. And, and I think that a lot of this does become a case. We were kind of talking off air where you just need to put yourself into a flag of yes or no so that you can be right or wrong. And you need to have a take. But fundamentally, I haven't seen enough goals. It's something that I've always questioned with Arsenal, um, especially this season. I, I didn't know if we had enough goals in this team. And then did we have enough to respond to a player being out for three or four months, to a player being out that was so crucial to how we played? That I didn't know whether or not we had. And, and I think you got those answers over this last little break. And I think Jesus coming unscathed, even from his re-entry and now in the international break, you can be confident that he's fit. I don't think there's going to be any rehab concerns now from a Jesus perspective. And I know we've got the Saliba kind of question mark on it. But for me, it's not a serious injury. So it's not something that I'm going to derail the run-in or question whether or not he could be available for the run-in. So I think from this point in time... We've essentially got all the mage pieces um, free and fit. And, and from this point, can you sustain it? I, I think we can. George, that is a wonderful, detailed and beautiful answer. Um, as always, we expect from you, beautifully analytical. But what I wanted to hear was, we're going to win the fucking league! <laughs> <laughs> because Brad, like, everything George said, I, I completely align with and I completely agree with. But there is just this overwhelming feeling within me that we're going to do it, that we are going to get number 14. It's like, and 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 every, every single week, it feels like we're going to break something. <laughs> Maybe we will, but it feels like we're going to break some new records. The 69 points accrued by Arsenal so far is the second highest at this stage of a season after the 70 the Invincibles had picked up after 28 league games. We're one point behind the Invincibles. Arsenal have won six Premier League games in a row, the joint largest winning streak in the top flight this season. We've matched last season's tally of 69 already with 10 games remaining. Arsenal became the first side in Football League history to win nine London derbies in a single season. We are in the form of our lives we're in the form of the Emirates life, 100%. And it's like the question of, okay, yeah, we, always, we always want to hedge our bets and we always want to go, oh, well, you know, this, that, and the other. And, and I think all those things are valid, but there's just this feeling within me that we are going to do it. And I think I've just been, I've drunk the Kool-Aid, whatever's happened, but I think something of this weekend, something about watching us yesterday, something flipped in me and I believe. Yeah, mate, sometimes it's not, football isn't about... <clears throat> The interchangeables or, or the kind of minutiary details, obviously they play massive, massive parts. But it was it was Bournemouth for me, probably because I was there, if you didn't know. Um, but I just, that when that goal hit the net, it just flipped something in me that went, this feels too good, this feels too important. And this feel, like it feels too monumental to lead to nothing. And that's why I think we'll do it. Because if you look at City and if you look at great teams that get used to success and haven't reinvented a lot during that success, they can become complacent and they, you know, whereas for us in terms of this run-in, this is the first time they're itching to do it. I don't think complacency is ever going to be the issue. Um, obviously, we can still lose games. The quality of the Premier League this season is the highest it's ever been. You've got basically eight teams at the bottom on the same points who could all go down. You've got teams like Brighton, uh, you know, absolutely just 
tearing it up. And to kind of bring it round to, to the game itself, my words, I have two words of the game. And they kind of fit under the same moniker or situation. And it's trust and belief. Sometimes as Arsenal fans, because we've been burned before, we lose trust and belief within this group, within within ourselves for what we feel to be going on. And I feel like we saw that happen in the lead up to this game. Obviously, George has mentioned the injuries uh, to Saliba, which I, I, I think is just mind games at this point. I think he's pulling him out of the France squad so that we can get him fully fit for the run in. Um, because it's just qualifiers, and I think if Saliba himself is is you can have a you could probably have a chat to him like man to man, be like this is the first time in twenty years, just fucking miss the qualifiers. Do you know what I mean? Um, but w- I think we saw a lot of fans lose trust and belief in in our system and in our style of play that thought that inserting a single cog in a machine filled with eleven was going to make the machine completely fall apart. And, you know, we'll have a chat about Rob Holding and his performance. But I think that we need to remember that trust and belief for the run-in. If we have to bring in some of the more fringe players to play big games and to play big minutes, whether that's injuries or suspensions or just from a tactical point of view, that this is a team that are... Mikel Arteta has gone from breaking records the wrong way to breaking records the right way. You know, there was a time in 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 the last two years where every record we broke would would, would just make me want to fucking top myself and jump out of a window. And now the the records are pristine, my friends. But we need to have trust in the system and the setup that is allowing us to break those records and understand that a player like Rob Holding being our fifth choice at centre back and having to come in and play a game. That's not the end of the world. And it's more important for us to back the players and give them our trust and belief because they feed off that. We've we've all been there. We've all seen it in the ground. When the atmosphere turns cagey and shit, players get nervy. We just need to feed them every ounce of energy that we have within ourselves. And we're going to win the fucking league. Like, that's going to happen. Yeah, I want to pick up on two things, Brad said, George. Um the first thing being, uh, well, I'll come to that in a second. The, sec- the second thing is, is something more related to the game, which we'll come to. But the first thing is this idea that this is all leading somewhere. This all feels like it's leading somewhere and this has to be going somewhere. And that's, I think that's maybe one of the biggest um, reasons I feel so positive about Arsenal is, is the fact that this all feels sustainable. This all feels repeatable. We'll come to Conte in, in News and Views and we'll talk about that. But, you know, in that kind of the, the sort of the juxtaposition of those two Footballing ideas, footballing identities, footballing cultures on and off the field in terms of the the structure of the team. Everything feels repeatable. Everything feels like it's on a path. Everything feels like it's moving in the right direction. And this all feels like it's leading somewhere. I believe, and ultimately what sort of what Brad was saying, it's a feeling. I feel like this 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 uh league is uh is is ours, and I think I feel like we're gonna do it. I'm looking around at City's fixtures and I'm looking around at our, our squad and I'm thinking, you know, looking at the remaining fixtures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and doing as much analysis as I can. But ultimately, it's a feeling. I feel we're going to do it. But regardless, this is going somewhere. We will be challenging next season because this is sustainable. This is repeatable. We've got a plan in place. We've got a, a system and a, a group of players and staff in place who are all pre-peak, who are all starting to tie themselves down to long-term contracts at the club, et cetera, et cetera. This is the start. 
So this is going somewhere. So I want to hear your thoughts on that. And secondly, I also want to hear your thoughts on what Brad said about Rob Holding, because I suppose turning our attention to the game, there was a kind of uh, a bit of a uh, sort of a chess match or a, a sort of a uh, maybe uh, maybe a Jenga match. I don't know what the what the game would be of a sort of going, do we move around a number of pieces in our team? to sort of compensate for what we have. Do we stick Partey at centre-back and Jorginho, Jorginho um, uh, in the middle? Does then that have a knock-on effect too much? Do we just accept that Rob Holding is going to come in and be be that cog in the system that Brad, Brad accepted? What would you have done and what would you what did you make of what we did in terms of the lineup? Yeah, so kind of to answer the, the first part of kind of the sustainability question, because I have been arguing on Twitter that the sustainability of Arsenal Football Club has not just been this season, it's been since Boxing Day 2021. And I guess where the, the, the gap or a kind of the, uh, the gap in perception between a top four race and a title race on margins, I think is the key difference. You know, I kind of put out a tweet about uh, sustainable football patterns are really the key metric uh, when you're trying to see what's a predictor of long-term success. Um, and it seems lazy that people will ignore underlying principles of play for the narrative of what a team or a manager has done on past success. And yes, cough, cough, I'm talking about Antonio Conte when you're really looking at this as a broader term difference around what was the sentiment between both when they were hired and between what has happened and why people held such belief. I think in terms of a title race, one thing I will say is I said kind of at the start in preseason, I felt that this title race would be different from others in a sense that we wouldn't see 100 point totals. I feel every big team went through a big rebuild in a sense that I feel that Liverpool and City both are going with very different types of strikers. I think they're going to have a very different type of season. Antonio Conte, as well as Mikel Arteta and the Ten Hag era, were all going to be very different types of rebuilds. And so I felt like in general, you wouldn't see the 100 point totals, which inherently meant that those that won the league would have to do so on lower points. It would be more competitive. And we would be in for one of the most competitive seasons that we have seen. And I do think if you start to look at it, that's another facet um, to this whole idea of what Arsenal are doing as an outlier. And I feel as though that it's very difficult to, on one hand, acknowledge how much of an outlier Arsenal have been and then not say that they were favorites as being kind of likely. That is difficult for me to accept. I mean, you can't believe that they are so much of an outlier and then be so confident on the league. Because the very nature of an outlier means you're relying on that 1% or 2%. And look, I still believe that I'm confident. I'm not going back on anything. But I just think those two ideas have to be symmetrical in your thinking, essentially. So for me, sustainability will continue because we've been showing that since 2021 in terms of our principles of play. Um, in terms of the title... I think the next step is your sustainability of mentality. So that's the change where we have responded to people being out. That's the change about, um, you know, kind of responding to high lines and making sure to play your way and not play down to your opponents. Those are, I think, the next step when you're talking title, let's say, um, and the difference just to top four. Uh, just to jump in before you, you continue, George, because uh, uh, that's a really good point, And I wanted to pick up on that. The idea that we can't sort of hold the two ideas of us being outliers and us being shoo-ins for the title as 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 at the same time, which I kind of hear. But do you not think what we've seen this season, the way that we have adapted, the way we've changed the way the, the, our patterns of play, the way certain players have come on, the way the team has got uh, has 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 come together and the fans have got together with the team? I accept that we were outliers at, at, at the start of the season, but do you not think by this point it feels? It's like, well, if we were if we were going to play this way, we would have we would have had this title. So the outlier 
the the idea that we're an outlier for me is more about how the project has come about. It's not necessarily us now. If you see what I mean? Yeah, because well, for me, I think the big question is the outlier in terms of play is very much the case, and I don't think I ever questioned the play. The outlier is definitely the mentality of having the youngest team in the world. Um, and you know the youngest manager kind of in the league to do it, it would be unprecedented in terms of that. And I think when you talk about titles, you talk about external factors because very rarely is it that a title race is lost based on play. Both teams are brilliant when you're in a title race, and sometimes things aren't going to your to your way. Sometimes people that are title favorites in terms of how they play don't win the title. They don't meet their objective. And it's not because they're not good enough to. It's not because they don't have the quality to do it. A lot of times there are external factors that impact that. So I always think that when you talk about title races, you move to a mentality composition in addition to your play style. So that, that's been the, the question mark for me and why I've been hesitant as the season has gone on because I needed to find those answers. And I feel like we have with Jesus in terms of that injury, how we dealt with that. I feel like we have with a lot of our away team form. I feel like we have with a lot of narratives that we've broken in terms of Spurs' win at their stadium. Some of those mentality concerns, let's say, we've passed the test. You know, the, our record in derbies, the records kind of go on. So, so that's why I think I can be confident in now feeling like we're going to win the league as opposed to before... I always felt the play was good enough, but I didn't know if we had the mentality to, let's say. And I guess moving on, because it'll answer your second part of the question, is do we have the mentality to put a Rob Holding in the team and still succeed? I don't think that was the case last season. I, I And, you know, I think it's a little bit not equivalent if I'm really being fair, because when we had a Rob Holding in quotes, it was normally with a Mohamed Elneny, a Tavares, and whatnot. Like, we do have to acknowledge that fact. But you know, having a Rob Holding play in this match and us produce one of the most free-flowing performances of the season, I do think it's kind of a postcard for if you were to comment on mentality that this squad has overcome it. You know, I think that is the literal definition because you're talking about a player who did very well on the night, um, a player that was much blind, but also beyond that, uh, I think you're talking about a player that many people have talked about as destroying our football. <laughs> like, he destroys your principles about what he can do individually. And that didn't seem to affect Arsenal. So that is that is a huge thing for me when I'm talking about the potential of a team, in my opinion. Because I agree with a lot of the statements in terms of Rob has his moments and he has specific areas where he's beneficial. But on the whole, can you put a Rob holding in the team? Can you take a Jesus out, a key cog, and still produce free-flowing football? We kind of have. I mean, it, it, it's kind of beyond chance at this point. You know, Jesus was out for 15 matches. Rob, it's not just this match, but we've had multiple times where Partey's not in it. And we have been able to sustain our football. It hasn't all been perfect. We have had fluidity concerns. But I just think that this match is kind of an extension of this idea that we can lose a key cog and still produce beautiful football that's repeatable and dominant in the same way that we have kind of all season with our starters. And that's kind of the key 5% that really does make your title mentality click, yes or no. And to back George up on that in terms of replacing cogs and repla replacing players in key cogs, uh, with the rumours that Tommy Asu is out for the rest of the season, if that is the case, it means that Arsenal will not have had all 25 members of their squad available for a single Premier League game this season. Mm -hmm. Let alone... But we always have them available. Eric Ten Hag told us that I we know, do. But no, so. Of course, we're going to make a joke about it, but let alone if you consider Tommy Asu being in the first kind of 15, 16 players of that 25. 
like we haven't had a single game where we've been able to have everyone we want both on the bench and in the team like yeah and we're still currently eight points clear but I mean obviously that's wrong because Eric Ten Hag told us obviously I'm just not bold enough to see it um, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no, too um, much hair in the way of my eyes that's it um no, you both make very cogent points. And I, yeah, let's come on to Rob Holding because um, he was, you know, he he was, he had a, uh, everyone knows Rob Holding's limitations as a footballer. There's a moment in the second half that sums it up for me that he, where Zaha gets a chance because he, he's just not, he just doesn't, doesn't show him to the side enough. He's kind of gets caught between sort of backing off and getting, getting forward. Doesn't quite make a decision. Zaha gets a shot away. Saliba probably shows him out wide or engages or whatever it is. It's just it's just little moments that you see like that. But realistically, something that I thought um, Arteta did really well yesterday was giving Rob Holding the things that Rob Holding likes to do. He was giving Rob Holding the, the chance to attack the ball and Gabriel was sweeping up. Normally what happens is Gabriel attacks the ball and Saliba starts to sweep up a little bit. But actually, I thought their roles swapped round yesterday. And there was a lot more, I think Arteta gave Holding the things that he wants to do. He wasn't asking Holding to defend loads and loads of space. He was asking he was asking him to basically get the ball and get it wide uh, and get it forward. And he is on the ball. Holding is fine. He has issues in 1v1 situations. He has issues in space. He's not as good as Ben White or Saliba or Gabriel on the ball. We know that. But he's not terrible. And if you look at his, his numbers, he really, he's an average Premier League centre-back on the ball. And, and, and I think that there's this idea that he's a kind of, you know, if he was called Rob Holdinho and, and Brazilian, I wonder whether that um, that uh, that perception would persist. But yeah, George, just uh, very quickly on Rob Holding's performance yesterday, I thought he, I thought he, all, all we can say is, I don't think he slowed us down, which is really all you all you ask for from someone coming in as your fifth choice centre back. And and if we have to come to him again for leads, if Saliba's not quite ready, um, it's not the end of the world. No, he, he definitely, in terms of his performance, he was fine. And when you don't talk about your centre-backs in terms of a performance, they've done a good job. I, I really think you make a very good point on the switching in roles. And the one thing I do want to bring up is last season when we faced Spurs away, that's something Mikel didn't do, by the way. When Rob Holding did come in, he was asked to do a very different role that didn't suit him in terms of him marking Kyung-Ming Sun and how he defended space. And I really do think this is, again, another metric about analyzing how Mikel has evolved in this team because we are faced again with putting Rob Holding, who we know his limitations, against a winger who, very similarly to kind of like Kyung-Ming Sun and Zaha, could have caused him huge problems if in space. I mean, we did see moments where he looked shaky on it. But the role that Rob Holding played was very, very different. And I think it is very important to how you fix um, kind of the the unplayables, quote, unquote, whether that's a Cedric, a Holding, or people that you know will cause you problems, but you play them anyways and you ask them to do things that they're comfortable with. Um, I really think it came down to as simple as that. Um, and, and Rob did well for his game. Uh, do I Am I confident in that happening for three or four games? I don't agree with that sentiment, but in this game, you cannot fault the man. He did his job and he did it well. He's fine against lower level Premier League opposition. That's the thing. We all know that. Yeah, we've we? always known it. Like, <laughs> if, like we've if always he were to it. leave Arsenal, he would probably end up at a palace for the current situation that they're in. Or, uh, you know, who else? who else is down there at the moment? There's so many, like a Villa or a Leicester. He would end up at those clubs fighting down the bottom of the Premier League so playing against them it's kind of 
like it's, I mean, I, I, I feel a bit harsh saying it, but it is his level. It's the level that you'd expect him to be starting at. So we can have confidence that if it's, if it's the level that we're expecting him to start at, he can come into a team where the other 10 pieces are still the same pieces and be yeah. fine. 100%. 100%. Um, I want to come on to uh, the lineup and sort of moving forward with with how he played, really. Um, I was interested to see who'd start. Obviously, I think it was uh, worked out. It was Martinelli, Zinchenko, Jacket, Gabriel, and almost White played 120 minutes on Thursday. So there was definitely some conversations about who uh, who would start. All of them did, <laughs> um, which is great. And yep. all of them came off in the end. Uh, the, in fact, they were our five substitutions, uh, Trossard, Martinelli, Zinchenko, Gabriel and White. Um, uh, I wasn't necessarily surprised not to see Gabriel Jesus start because I also, you know, Arteta said something the other day about him having to earn his way back into this team. And I think perhaps we can come to Trossard a little bit later. Um, but when you've got a dynamic that works, if you're trying to build a meritocracy, I think this idea that just someone just comes back into the team automatically when it's working, when Trossard has, you know, eight goals and eight assists in the league now, I don't think is uh, particularly healthy for the for the team. And is another reason, I think, why Rob Holding comes in, because you have to use your squad. You can't say to someone, oh, you're, you, ha- you have to earn your way into the team, to a Smith or something like that. Then the second Jesus is available, start him straight away. And also, I imagine there's a fitness um, component to that as well. But um, Brad, like, I wanted to talk about how he played, because what's so impressive about this team as well is our energy. Like Martinelli has just played 120 minutes. He's missed the penalty that um, that that puts us out of the Europa League, which, I mean, at this point, thank fuck. <laughs> but 3-0 up, Martinelli is running 40 yards to go and press Joe Whitworth. 3-0 up, Trossard is standing in the right defensive positions, ensuring he gets out to the ball, ensuring he presses in, in the in the right in the right way. The energy that this team had is considering considering what they had to go through on that Thursday is incredible. And, I, and, I, and I'd love to come back to you on that, but I just want to talk about as well, how we dealt with Palace's early threat. Cause I thought actually Palace early on had some encouraging signs. They were using Jeffrey Schlupp in quite a nice way, getting the ball forward to Schlupp and Schlupp was sort of being the sort of Schlupp, 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 sh- Schlupp, Schlupp forward. He was Schlupping. Um, he was Schlupping it forward. Uh, he was getting on Partey um, and getting it forward. But I thought what we did so well, we sort of, we're nicely, as we have done a lot this season, sort of vacating and entering midfield when we needed to. Trossard was just dipping in and out. Zinchenko just dipping in and out and leaving it to the rest of them, going out wide and getting those wide triangles going. And um, Ben White as well, considering he played 120 minutes, was superb in his line manipulation, in the way he facilitates those those wide triangles and the way he gets it in behind the centre-back and in between the full-back. And that's where the spaces were occurring. Ben White and Odegaard and Saka's movement was bringing that space for Saka and Martinelli. And I don't think it's a surprise either either of those guys scored. But yeah, you know, those guys who um, came in after those 120 minutes, I thought were possibly our best players in in certainly the first half in in White and Martinelli. Yeah, I mean, if you look at that and you look at the training ground photos that came out, I think either before or after Palace, you you see the atmosphere hasn't, hasn't been knocked or changed by the exit in the Europa League, which is something that I really worried about because there was... Uh, Arsenal of old would have taken that really, really hard and possibly hit us hit a spiral. Um, and I think what's lovely about what we're seeing is we're almost seeing those, those old padlocks on the chains of Arsenal 
like come off one by one. The being knocked out of Europe, but it not having an effect at all on the way that we approach the league and our on our mentality and our positivity and you know putting Rob Holding in after an injury to two like very important defenders for us and having that not affect our mentality and positivity in the way that we approach games all of these are things that would have massively hampered and hurt us in I would say even last year let alone previous years Christ alive um but I think one thing that we that I mean, Georgia said it, you've said it, I'll say it. The mentality has changed. It's different. That missed penalty for Martinelli is forgotten about. He's not losing sleep. He's hungry. It's the same with all of these players. There is a different mentality. They've all got their dog in them. Like, do, do you get me? Like, it's it's all, like that. It's it's so different to Meza Ozil's back problems. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's no, the, the culture that has been set is now, that's the thing, the culture that has been set, and we've had to go through hard times to set this culture, um, getting rid of Aubameyang, getting rid of Ozil, getting rid of all of these players, and and going through real financial constraints and hard times to make sure that we got the right players and we're in the right situations. All of that pain, resetting that culture, has bred this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's no and, hiders. There's no hiders, and that is so, so exciting. And everyone's performing to the maximum of their capacity, which tells you that the system and the, and the culture is working, as, as you say. And, you know, like, there is, there was an interview with Martinelli after the game where he said something like, someone said, oh, well, you know, what did you think about the penalty? And he was like, it's life. You know, sometimes it just happens. You you miss penalties. You're not going to perform every, every day. And, you know, sometimes when footballers or actually people in general are clearly hiding the fact that they're really hurt by it and they're yeah. like yeah it's fine yeah you know it's, like, oh, well, it's just life isn't it you know it's what it, I, don't, I don't care i don't care well, don't you can just know. see even even at 21 he's just like yep yeah, it's life like you just got to get through it and that that mentality and that and that um you're gonna always get better in life in it you're gonna always get better in life in it and george i want to come to you on the tactical side of things and anything you you noticed from your um I don't know if we uh, mentioned, but George has a UEFA B coaching license. So, yeah. Um, but we <laughs> uh, just want to give you a stat as well. Arsenal scored four goals from just five shots on target against Crystal Palace yesterday. We are brutal. And, you know, we've got those people who played 120 minutes absolutely running their socks off. And I thought it was our, specifically our movement yesterday that created a lot of the spaces in behind. Specifically, as I say, those wide triangles, which I know I bang on about all the time, but they're so important for Arsenal. Um how did you see the sort of the sort of breakdown of the game and how did you see it tactically? Yeah, so I felt as though there was a couple key performers that uh, really got us up the pitch quickly. And uh, Ramsdale was incredibly key to this. You know, we all see the clip of that kind of early ball out to Saka in terms of what that does. But all game, he was not dithering on the ball. And immediately that meant that our buildup was quick and we didn't struggle with it. You know, I think of previous games, our buildup was slower. And so we got to the final third a little bit later. And so that meant that, you know, a lot of the times our poor personnel on the left-hand side maybe was exploited a bit more by opposition. So immediately that was the first thing that I noticed, that Aaron Ramsdale's distribution and his also his 1v1 breaks have been immense lately. I know I talked about it on the instant reaction, but he was very important to getting us up the pitch quickly. Then Bukayo Saka decided to be an alien. That absolutely kind of happened in this game. But Ben White, for me, was the key tactical piece that really unlocks everything. And, you know, it's, it's his kind of extra technical pausa, let's say, which is, you know, a football Twitter term. But it just means about knowing when to release the pass, God, George. really. 
Um, you know, God, from, a, from give credit, <laughs> give credit to the person right now who created that term. We can't steal anything around here, George. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I might have to hold my hand. Where did you get that, that stat, huh? Did Albino tell you that Saka's called a goal yesterday? Because uh, if he did, you got to credit him. But no, you're right. And just to, I'll let you finish, but I'm just watching the goals back now and, and Ben White's got a pre-assist and an assist and it is all about his releasing. It, it is complete. And you know what it is? Like when I first talked about me seeing or envisioning Ben, ben White as kind of a right back, everybody agreed with me on the running power. The one thing nobody agreed on was his crossing variety. And that was the scouting tidbit that I really felt would unlock his potential in the final third. And this is part of it. You know, his ability to know when to release markers is second to none. And you could see that at center back, by the way. He knows when to release in the midfield and when to recycle. This, for me, is key to kind of the goals. You know, he knew when to have these slip balls into the box that were phenomenal. But then he also knew at what point to kind of have a, a half space cross and when the right moment to gamble is. And I think Carlos Cuesta kind of talked a lot about that in terms of his anticipation in the All or Nothing documentary, but I think his understanding of that in possession is the secret sauce that makes Ben White a right back and not a center back, is the secret sauce that kind of makes him a lot more influential in the final third. And then lastly, as a little tidbit, I think Trissard's ability to drop deep meant that Grenon Shaka wasn't deeper or afraid of transitions, and you know he was much more on the last line, and he was able to really exploit that. I think he quietly had another return to a phenomenal game, and you know, look, he scored the goal, which is brilliant, but I just feel his decision-making in the final third was crisp, his passing wasn't delayed, and I felt like that was very good in terms of allowing the switches of play out to Saka, who I think everybody recognized was having an alien game, but the team adapted to getting him the ball quickly. I feel as though last moments, you know, there were times that, you know, Martinelli or Saka had glimpses of being really, you know, in form, let's say, in the last two months, but I don't know if the team got it to them quick enough. That was one of the biggest critiques that we had maybe of the left-hand side fluency or whatnot. Now we recognize, look, Bakayo is in one of his alien moods. Get him the ball as quickly and as much as possible because he will ruin Tyreek Mitchell, who, by the way, and I'll just end on this, is one of the better 1v1 defenders in the league, and he cooked him. It, it was just, it was so um, dominant that I, I just feel that that was the main difference in terms of Arsenal's, Arsenal's kind of ruthlessness from not just securing um, output on so, on so little shots, but it was those quick little tactical changes, A, Getting, getting the ball out quickly the final third from Ramsdale's distribution, then B, Ben White's cuteness in the final third, knowing when to half space cross or slip in, and then, of course, Trissard's movement, which allows Granit Xhaka to push on the, on the kind of the, uh, the, the, the center back and right center back lane and make space for us. And, yeah. and we just ruthlessly kind of exploited that. You're right. And Ben White is cute. Um, the... No, you're right. And, and and just on Ben White as well, just watching those those things, I think something that is really important to uh, to games is is when it breaks open. And I think when when a game breaks open and how a team breaks a game open and how the team gets that there, once a game is 1-0, it is a different game. And, you know, it's pretty obvious, but obviously a team start has to start going, okay, we have to approach this slightly differently. Spaces start to appear differently. Players start to play slightly differently. There's less of a, you might want to try something out a bit more. The game state does change with every single goal, of course. And so breaking a game open is, is seriously important. And I felt like our right-hand side and specifically Ben White was so important to breaking the game open. And for both of the first goals, um, 
uh, Ben White is is crucial. Firstly, he goes and gets the ball and steals it off Zaha's foot, plays it into Saka, and then Saka obviously gets the ball over to Zaha. But again, it's that right-hand side that gets overloaded, 4v2, and then leaves space on that far-hand side. And then the second one is, again, Ben White, as you, as you alluded to, George, just releasing the ball at exactly the right time. He just waits and he sees that he sees it. He waits. You can see his right foot hovering, plays it at the right time. He's in. It's two 0 And when you can break games open like that with players who are that intelligent, it's it's so important. Brad, only Harland with thirty three, which is crazy, and Kane with twenty three, have more Premier League goal involvements than Bakayo Saka with twenty two in the Premier League this season. And I think I saw a stat yesterday that he has something like three goal involvements to go before he equals Arjen Robben's best ever return. Which is 24. Uh, in yeah. any league season. Mm-hmm. He's also not for, uh, I think if he gets another 10 goals and assists, which is doable in the last 10 games of the season, he matches Hazard's best ever season. Um, like the, the, the levels the boy's hitting at, at 21 years old is, is, is mental. I mean, he's he's like Marcus best best forward in the world. Rashford has got two more Premier League goals than him. Martinelli is, a, a, I think, a single Premier League goal off Rashford. They've but maybe they've played a couple more games or whatever. But if you and Rashford's on penalties and and Martinelli's not. The output from from these guys is just sensational. It's, it's scary. Like it's it is scary and scary to consider that you know we've we've not even had our one of our top scores from last season on the pitch really for like the last year in Smith Row. so if he put anywhere near up the numbers that he put in last season this season if you know it's the out the output that has been coagulated almost by this fucking system is fucking frightening like everyone's getting so many goals like it's crazy. Trossard has six assists for Arsenal. He'd got like six in his last 64 games. Like, what the fuck is going yeah. on? But it tells you in Mikel's system, when he closes the distances, when he gives you, when he simplifies your decision-making in the final third because everyone knows what everyone needs to run. When Ben White receives the ball here, here's what I want you to do. It's when it's so simple, it does create that so because it, and it's, it's almost unstoppable. It's that one, it's so simple. It's that one brain thing, you know, that Mikel so talks about. And, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's mine, mine and Brad's old ballet teacher used to go, it's so simple. It's so simple. It's so simple. It's just change, so simple. It, change your face. Um, and yeah, uh, George, I, I don't want to linger too long here because there is, you know, there's a tendency uh, to kind of get into the to, to find something that went wrong and kind of you know go and you know this is the real problem because it's not it's not a problem we're top of the league eight points clear like it's fine but we did concede another set piece at home and you know in the first place I'm asking Ben White why that's going for a corner um, and there's a sort of like I love that I'm sorry com- before we discuss this I love that. Him just making that challenge and then coming and just booting the fucking ball. It's it, yeah, and then but, him and Granite. I loved it. I'm sorry. Sometimes, sometimes in life, we just got to have a bit of fun. We were three nil up. Who gives a fuck? The fact that he just came in and cunted that ball into Rosette for no reason gives me so much joy. I can't explain why. I like. I, I think about it and it makes me. It makes me laugh. It's so funny. It's it's objectively hilarious. He could just lay the ball off. He could pass it. 
just cunts it. I don't know why. It's great. Sorry. It's a, Carry on with the intellectual shit, but I just no, wanted to give you that. No, but, <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it's for me though, Brad, I, I find it a bit, I think if there's a weakness and a worry about this team, it's that we get, it's, we could be, could lose our heads a little bit in the kind of heat at the moment. And that's, you know, it's understandable completely, but there's a kind of chest pumping, fist clenching type of thing that happens there, which is kind of fine. But then it's like, okay. And I'm watching it back, George. And, you know, it's another set piece conceded from home at home. Sorry. There's got to be a systemic issue here because, of course, I'm looking at this goal that happens and there is just a moment where I, th- I can't exactly tell who loses it, but it just sort of drops for Schlupp. There's two players on Schlupp and he just gets round them and just gets a foot to it, gets a boot to it. And it's kind of just the ball drops favourably for him and he just he's just in the right place at the right time. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't even particularly say it's a... Yeah, I, I, but I, I can't identify what the systemic issue is, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. It just feels like we're conceding loads from set pieces in it and, it, and it does worry me. But if you look at it, mate, I think one of those players that you're mentioning that's on Schlupp is Martin Odegaard, and it reeks of having him on Tarkovsky with Everton. I do think the systemic issue is concentration because we've marked everybody in most of these, but kind of the error that I think we make is, A, putting Martin Odegaard should never be on Schlupp from a corner set piece, just broadly. And I'm sure Nicholas Yeover is not asking him to do that and be on Tarkovsky as well. But then also kind of Martin Odegaard switches his body position, um, you know, in terms of opening up and allowing Schlupp to kind of receive off the knee after originally blocking kind of the goal side. Um, And that's kind of the issue. If you really want to break it down, that's the issue. But should Martin Odegaard be marking Schlupp? No. That, That for me, I do think that at times Arsenal... The over-emotionality means that we lose the assignments a bit. And part of that works in possession when you're looking at the fluency of the positioning. But in set pieces, you can't do that. So you can't replace a Martin Odegaard for a Gabriel in that same spot. Gabriel is the second player that, by the way, is marking Schlupp. But he's marking the zone behind Schlupp. And that is immediately, for me, something that's an issue. Like, I would rather my best aerial defender be more near post. I just fundamentally feel that Palace as a team and most teams attack the near post a lot more than they do the back post. And, you know, if they do attack the back post, it's more of a case of looking at third man running like we do from the penalty spot, not so much the back post creeping in. And so for me, that's the issue. And we don't have a dominant aerial person near post in this instance. And I think that's wrong. Um, But I just think that Martin's filling in because he sees nobody there. Uh, and so it's commendable from that sense, but it's just wrong from the team. And look how angry Aaron Ramsdale is. I don't think he's angry at Martin missing it. I think he's angry that Martin is picking up an assignment that he shouldn't have been doing. And I think and that's before, the systemic part. Uh, sorry, just really quickly. No, no, you that is the systemic issue with our set pieces for me. It hasn't been a case of us not getting to our zone, not defending the correct um, area of the pitch uh, consistently. It's who we're asking to do these assignments has been wrong consistently. And look, you could just say that's also kind of um, a systemic issue, by the way. Like, that's not something just to throw your hands up at. I do think that the players need to get a little bit more on board about understanding where the danger is. Because there's a three to four second uh, interim at every single set piece. And I want us to be more switched on at that. I don't think that we do enough of that. Where if there's a pause in play, by the way, there's a pause in the throw-ins, there's a pause... At some of the free kicks, we have been slow, even from kickoff. You look at the Bournemouth goal, classic example of this. Our team has an ability sometimes to switch off when the ball is out of play. 
And I think that's one of the more systemic issues on concentration that I have um, that I hope we fix. But I, I, that's my diagnosis of the problem so far. All right, Mr. Doctor. Your little diagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Brad, I thought you were going to... Oh, well, I mean, no? George basically came on and it's a perfectly... Podcast, mate. You got a... <laughs> no, it, I mean, what I was going to say, pretty much George has just come across and, and said about, I was going to say about concentration, because you see it, like, they are, there's such a cluster, they're just slow to react. I also don't think Zinchenko helps. He goes to challenge a man marked by Ben White, and if he stays where he is, I'm, watch, I'm, I'm just watching it back at, like, half speed. If he stays where he is, he he's basically in the perfect position to pick it up but I think that he's obviously gone to follow his man which is Gahey but Ben White's there I don't know there's there, there's a bit of an issue with that um, I, I buy I buy George's uh Dr George's diagnosis yeah like I, I think there is a, a sort of a concentration issue and certainly Erdegaard feels like someone on set pieces who is has has been suspect and I think I hope the, the conversations are happening on the on the training ground Couple more things before we go to news and views. Should be straight to the captaincy. Um, she got off to play from Ecuador. Just got off to play from the Emirates. Um, <laughs> Jakub Kivior, I have absolutely nothing scientific or analytical to add. Just looks good. He's fucking just massive. looks just looks like a prem player, mate. Looks looks comfortable on the ball. Looks like just he just had a touch, and I was like, yep, can see that. Like this, just this guy who's comfortable on the ball I have you know we've barely seen him play in the shirt um, I like that Mikel brought him on because uh, firstly Gabriel needed a rest but secondly it's just gets that sort of first Premier League debut you know it doesn't have to be against Man City or whatever it ends up being uh, knowing our luck um, but uh, but yeah no sort of I, I just wanted to say that because I thought he looked good um, more importantly did you see Steve Pe- Parrish's kid no terrifying terrifying he was the most terrifying little child I've ever. He was like in a horror film. Hopefully, someone who's listening will will know what I'm talking about. And also, shout out Yaya Sanogo, who's there. Yaya, Harry Kane could never. Harry FA Kane Cup could never. Winner, Yaya Sanogo. <laughs> More trophies. Um, finally, double FA Cup winner, Yaya Sanogo. Is he? Yeah, he won two with us. I'm pretty sure. Did he? Yeah, I think he was part of the squad now? for two. Uh, last time he was playing in France, I think. He's plays. Oh, he plays for the Armenian Premier League club, Uratu. <laughs> right. He was at Arsenal for four years. <laughs> played for Palace as well. Amazing. Oh yeah, played for Palace. Oh, he was at Toulouse, and then he went to Huddersfield. Ten, ten appearances, zero goals. That's probably why I was at the game. And for Arsenal, fifteen appearances. Zero goals. Although Zero he did goals. score in that Benfica game. So, you know. Um, final thing, just want to, probably worth mentioning, is the goal difference. Arsenal now at 40, City at 42. Um, could be important come the end of the season. So it's important to get that. Right. Uh, let's go to news and views. Brad, we'll see you. Let's do it. After this. News and views. Welcome back to news and views. Where we give you all the news on your views, but mostly ours. Thank you to those of you who are in the Diffnog Members Club. Join at patreon.com forward slash Diffnog and get access to ad free versions of all of our content, including main and bonus podcasts, interactions, and rewatch and bonus. And for one time support, head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Diffnog where you can buy me a coffee. It's a cozy lives, babes. Get get the coffees in. 
<laughs> you see that? You know, you ever seen that like Depop drama Twitter 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 account? Oh yeah. And, uh, <laughs> If someone's like, oh, can you can you have like no like can, can I not you do pay post or something? Instead of ten, she's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, and she's nah, like, nah, it's Cosy lives. Sorry, babes. babe, Cosy lives. <laughs> <laughs> um, quick one before we get into oh, some questions. Did you see that video of Zinchenko doing that control challenge? Oh, made the third. Oh, touch. don't just don't. Can we like? I I I already feel bad about myself as a human being. Like. <laughs> He's an alien, mate. If you haven't seen it, it's on uh, my at Aim on Football um, Twitter account. It is absolutely. I've I've never seen someone control a football like that. Like other than like Ronaldinho, do you know what I mean? Like that that's the level we're talking about. He is crazy. It's if you haven't seen it, it's Inchenko doing this um, like control challenge with I don't know some guy who works for Pro Direct Sport or something, um, and he just he's just fired balls and he's just taking the piss. It's so easy for him. Um, Tommy Asu again. It's it's really difficult. There's some decent, decently um, reliable sources saying that Tommy Asu is out for the season. I don't want to spread that as kind of gospel. We don't know. Let's wait and see. But some pretty decent uh, sources saying that he is. Um, and Saliba supposedly is out for a couple of weeks. Certainly not going on international break. George, um, it's a concern. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a concern, but I kind of had that concern on the instant reaction. I mean, I, again, I didn't want to fear monger, but my gut was he's out for the rest of the season because um, I didn't like how he It was nasty. Felt. Like that was mechanism nasty. was pretty poor, yeah. And, and I do think like, you know, he has surgery. And from a Saliba standpoint, though, I maintain I don't think it's long term. And despite kind of the fear mongering of several weeks, I still think that it's an issue with kind of a spasm. But look, let's let's play the scenario that, you know, you do have him out for an extended period of time because the idea that he's back means it's good. So that there's no use discussing that scenario. Um, look, if he is out, there needs to be a serious long-term concern about Rob holding at right center back and whether or not you change to allow that because we are having quite a few games where we, you know, you face a Newcastle um, at St. James's Park. You have the Etihad, you have Anfield, you have Chelsea, you have big games where I don't think in isolation Rob can remain at right center back. And I do think the one iteration where you saw Thomas Partey move to right back was kind of a case of if Saliba is out for a longer period of time, that is something that you could see um, with kind of Ben White going back um, to right center back so that you can secure the back line. Um, Do I love it? Uh, No, I I, I don't love it. Do I think that I would prefer a, a Thomas Partey at right back and a Ben White at right center back for a longer period than I would uh, a Rob Holding, I'd probably tend to agree, only because uh, Thomas Partey's played a huge amount of time at right back, by the way. One of the big reasons why we probably signed him was his right back performance against us for Atletico Madrid. It's not a foreign position to him. And, you know, I still think he can do the things that make him great in our system from right back. And really the key to me from this season has been the press. And it has been our ability to have a high line, by the way. And you can't do that with Rob Holding. For as good as he is in specific game states, you cannot do that for longer than four games. So for me, if you've got a really bad scenario where William Sleba is out for much longer, um, I do think that the best way to stem the bleed is to make sure you've got your most uh, athletic 1v1 defenders and pack them in the back line. Um, that for me is the key that we can make sure that we're staying high up the pitch because no solution is good. But for me, that is definitely the key to making sure um, that we're going to keep opposition uh, possession in their own half otherwise 
if you start doing kind of funky situations with, um, you know, Rob holding the back, I do think you allow teams an ability to get out a little bit more. Yeah. Brad, what would you do? Because I suppose, you know, Rural Walters name springs to mind. Uh, I'm just, you know, thinking out loud no. in terms of solutions. There's a, a possibility of Gabriel and Kivior, but that's then two left footers. Partey at centre back, Partey at right back. There's a there's a number of things that we could explore if Saliba is out for longer. I mean, hopefully we don't have to get to this situation, but what do you do in that situation? And second part of the question, I guess, is we need players who are available. And if Tommy Asu can't get on the pitch, uh, no matter how good he is, that's a concern for me. I understand what you're saying about Tommy Asu there, but I think that's a bit unfair. Because that that injury isn't based off of or off of him being injury prone. That that injury is based off of bad luck sliding into a really bad position. And and like it's not that he's just done like a fifteen yard sprint and and ripped his calf to shreds again. Like I would expect most players who have fallen in the way that he has fallen to to get an injury. If I'm honest, I, I hear you. Uh, I hear you. But just just quickly. You know, he's he had knee trouble um, when he first arrived. He had a calf injury, which kept him out basically the whole back end of last season. He's now yeah. probably out for the rest of this season. I, I, I'm not I'm not trying to write Tommy Asu off, and I'm not he's not a bad player. I'm not not trying to do that at all. The question is, is like, can we consistently rely on someone? Yeah, I think I think we can because I think there's a lot of context that's missed around this with Tommy Asu in the. One of the main reasons he kept getting injured last season is because we kept rushing him back because otherwise we're playing Cedric Suarez. Or we were having to rush him back to play left back because Kieran Tierney was out and we yeah, didn't want to play Nuno Tavares. You know, like I think a lot of his injury issues uh, last season stemmed much like Thomas Partey's were at the beginning and stages of last season came from a fact that we had no one else to fill in at these positions. So players... For uh, you look at the Gabriel Jesus situation. If that's last season, Jesus is already playing ninety minutes for us every single game. Jesus plays one hundred and twenty minutes for us against Sporting, and then plays ninety minutes against Palace. You know, it's it's different now. We actually have a squad, and I think that he has unfortunately got a bad injury at the wrong time that will kind of give confirmation bias to a lot of things around kind of the injury issues that he's had. Whereas in reality. He's just suffered a bad injury that I would expect probably 99% of professional footballers to sustain if they're falling in that way at that velocity. And, you know, I'd love to hear George's thoughts being the doctor of the show. That wasn't facetious. That's genuine. Um, And also, we were having to continually throw players into the starting lineup before they were fit and ready last season. Happened with Ben White on the end of last season. You know, we were having serious, serious problems. So I'm not worried about Tommy Asu yet. But if it persists again next season, then there's a real conversation to be had. Um, but I, I, I don't think it's the end of the world. In terms of what I would do around the Saliba injury and around kind of the changes that I would make, it all depends on the length of time Saliba is out for. If it's four, like kind of four-ish weeks... I think we're safer changing one position than changing the whole complexion. And as much as I think that Thomas Partey at right back, he's played a lot of games there. It's a position that he he fits in 
well, we found such a chemistry with Bakayo and Ben White there that I wouldn't want to ruin or destroy that. Uh, so I, if he's out for the only, the thing is, we will know by Liverpool whether City have beaten or lost to Liverpool. And if City lose to them, that Liverpool game is a bit of a throwaway for me. It's at Anfield. We never win at Anfield. I'm not incredibly het up about it. Obviously, if City get a result against them, I feel like we need to match it. But we'll at least know by that point. But if he's out until kind of the end of March, the end of April, like if we're talking about Leeds, West Ham and Southampton, I'm comfortable with Rob holding in at centre-back for those three games. It's only Anfield. I think if that Anfield game is... Who else have we got to play that's... For example, if we're playing Wolves instead of Liverpool or Forest instead of Liverpool, two teams that we still have to play, I think the conversation is different. I just think that we're having this this vision to Anfield and playing Rob Holding at centre-back. Whereas... And and, and kind of the the nightmare fuel that that is. But if... I, it's a wait and Somehow see Cedric game Suarez because if he's out until yeah, <laughs> God Almighty, if he's out till till the end of April and he's get, I would say um, don't mess with the system too much. I think we'd lose too much moving party from midfield. There's a there's a big and obvious difference when we when we have Jorginho in there, um, but that's only for Liverpool because I'm like it, we, if we dominate the midfield at Liverpool and we can just play well with the front line I I think you might be able to get away with a Rob Holding there um, because we can keep the ball and if we can just win that midfield battle which I think we're more likely to do with a Thomas Partey in there it it, it changes the onus of the game I want us to take the game to Liverpool uh, and I think that putting Partey in at centre-back almost or putting Partey in at right-back gives me a bit of an illusion of we might assume that we need to do that because of defensive frailties but I I just think it's mind games mate I think we're pulling him from the France squad and so we're Mikel has done this all season the man was shoving suppositories up Trossard to get him back I guarantee (laughs) I I I would bet every penny that I am worth which is not very much that William Uh, Saliba plays Anfield I, 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 I just don't see a world where this isn't bullshit yeah, I, well, I don't know if it's bullshit, but I'm, I'm sure he is injured, but I'm not sure it's as bad oh, as, yeah. as some some people oh. are fearing. Um, George, just to sort of round this conversation off, because Brad, I, I hear you on Tomiyasu. I, I absolutely do. I, I And I think that's important context, and I think you're right to bring it up. I just, if you look at it with a, with you know, without your glasses on, you're just seeing a guy having another season where he's injured again. And, you know, it's, it's, I just want players who, who can be on the pitch and, and, and it's important context and probably I would, I, you know, if I was given a choice, I wouldn't sell Tommy Asso in the summer. I'm not saying that. But uh, it's just something we need to have a look at. Uh, George, as our resident uh, youth expert, both on and off the pitch, um, is Rule Walters even an option? Or am I just picking a name out of a hat and saying... Because, you know, Mikel played him in preseason. He is an option for preseason. Is he an option for a title run-in that you rely on experience, having never played um, uh, adult football in a large capacity, not even out on loan, by the way, um, in, in your first title in you know so long? I, I don't know about that statement. You know, he's a very 
good player that will uh, respond to tactical instruction. He's caught between a, a right back and a right center back, not quite tall enough to be a right center back, but also um, explosive, but not quite cute enough in the final third to be a right back. So he is one of those in terms of profile where he is almost a right center back in a three is probably his best ceiling. Um, now that sounds really nice when you consider kind of what we've been doing recently with our 3-2-5, um, but uh, for me, um, I feel as though that the experience of playing adult football is something that he doesn't have enough of, and you know, he's also coming off kind of a in-and-out season himself, um, you, know, you know, with the u 21 so it's difficult for me to say I trust that type of youth in a, a, a title run-in. And there's also, by the way, I will underpin that, there's very few youth I would trust under that context. And I just think uh, fundamentally, when you look at the amount of games that could be missed, I think Brad is spot on. Like if it's um, three to four games, I really do think the holding conversation switches for me. Um, beyond that mark, I don't trust a Rob Holding in a system alone. But under than that, then yes, I think he he is somebody that could absolutely fill in. And we kind of saw it with his FA Cup um, heroics really back then with, you know, per murder like for me, any sustained period of Rob holding is a different kettle of fish to a one or two one-off game, kind of like a cup scenario, which I find a little bit different. Then we have to start getting creative in my opinion from if that's the case, but then I would kind of say, yeah, I, I agree with Brad. I think, uh, Saliba is going to be back. And I do think that it's a little bit of mind games, but, um, from the Tommy Asu thing, just again, very quickly, get out your bingos. Um, I do think that there's a way to cut fat. And I've said this about Karen Tierney in the past. Um, there, may, there may be very logical reason for moving Tommy Asu on. And I wouldn't think that you're crazy, Alex. But the one thing I will say is I think that you're cutting muscle and not fat when you talk about, um, you know, a Tommy Asu versus, say, a Rob Holding, as much as I love the man. Um, and despite the injury issues, and you kind of get into that conversation with maybe a Karen Tierney and a Tavares for me. There is space to cut, and I'm almost at the point where I would like at first for us to cut all the fat, and then if we talk about addressing the muscle, we can do so. Uh, if you want to improve that, we can, but it kind of adds jobs to a summer transfer window that I still think we have a little bit more overturn to do. I don't think we're at the season where we're just buying one or two, by the way. I still think that we're going to have a very busy summer in terms of overturn, and especially departures that is going to dominate business. So I think we're one year too late before making that kind of ruthless decision on a squad. But I don't think it's out of the question, let's say. I, I do believe in Tommy Asu as a center back, by the way, in terms of his uh, quality. And I do think a lot of his injuries are going to be negated when you start putting him in deeper positions that he's just receiving and not higher up the pitch. Because I do think that that is part of the problem as well. But that is also just a theory and part of my uh, my own subjective bias of where I see him best. Yeah, no, to be clear, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely not suggesting we sell Tommy Asu and, and under, under no circumstances. I just think there is some concern that is beginning to grow for me around whether this guy can stay fit in the same way that we had, we've had those concerns about other players and they've come through it or they haven't or whatever. It's just we're in that sort of pre-conversation and I agree at the moment he would you would be cutting... Uh, you would be cutting uh, muscle, not fat. Um, on the rule Walters thing, that's bad news. So you're unreliable, and I don't agree. Uh, similar to when when a, when like Fabrizio Romano says we're not in for someone, he's unreliable, unfortunately. Uh, let's do some questions. We've had a question in from at Steve's ninety one who says, "Any jobs going on the pod for Conte? 
poor bloke had to fly Ryanair after getting the sack. This is, of course, um, after Conte's... He uh, he's. I think it's pretty reliable that he's going, certainly. I, I don't know whether he's, he's gone yet, but I think it's Matt Law at Daily Telegraph who gets pretty much everything right. Um, he's, they're expected to pop... They're expected to part ways this week, reports uh, oh. Telegraph Football. Oh. Um, I mean, I can't we can't miss. We Just can't fucking... miss an opportunity to uh, to talk about this. And a question from uh, well, question <laughs> Fabrizio Romano's asked us a question. Fabrizio Romano's tweeted: Internal discussions are taking place at Tottenham on Antonio Conte's situation with Daniel Levy to have final say, as Conte's plan to leave at the end of the season was already clear after UCL defeat. Um, Brad, like, yes. I suppose the way this is relevant for Arsenal is it kind of is proving... Well, firstly, we all sort of knew this was, was going to happen and I think it's it's proof, sort of to, to, allude, to back what, uh, allude back to what George was saying at the beginning of the podcast about sustainability in football. Sustainable actions, sustainable football, sustainable um, modes, modes of conduct, sustainable structures, everything is the only way forward in football. And, and I, I actually think, you know, even even the likes of Newcastle, you're seeing, they're not just going out and spending 150 million every window. Uh, I mean, they probably will at some point, but at the moment they're, they're restructuring their training ground, they're getting the right football people in, they're sorting out their academy, all that sort of stuff, because you cannot put 150 million pound cherries on top of shit cakes. And I think that's sort of what Spurs have done, you know, with, with Conte, they brought in a quote unquote winner, how much of a winner he really is, I don't know. And you see what happens uh, when it all starts to break down. I think it's deeply unprofessional what he did, but also I think he's probably spitting some truths about Spurs that that, that need to be said. My main worry is that they get Ruben Amorim. That's what that's what I'm Ruben worried about. Ruben Amorim is is a very good coach, but in no way destined to succeed at Spurs. Like, uh, but no Antonio coach is Con- destined to succeed at Spurs. No, I know, but the, if you look at who they've had as their last three managers, Mourinho's won a trophy every single club he's gone to. Conte left a title-winning interside. Listen, I think if you one of the main reasons that Conte hasn't succeeded is that his type of football no longer suits the Premier League. But there's no doubt that he could get players playing in a way that could at least, you know, do something. He is in no way a, a horrendous coach. They're fourth. But, yeah, they're fourth. Uh, and <laughs> like, I think that's a lot down to the misgivings of other teams rather than their actual position. And I think also if you look at the actual numbers, they're, they're, they should be much, much lower. But... In what Arsenal have been so good at and what we've what we've we've praised them so much for in being aligned and having a clear vision, Tottenham just aren't. I'm looking at their transfer business right now. This season they've spent 140 million euros on Chris uh, and bearing in mind they knew that Antonio Conte had a year left on his contract when signing these players. Some of them, they knew he had six months left on his contract when signing these players. They've signed two right wing backs, one of which has already gone out on loan, one of which is only becoming a permanent in the summer who isn't known for his defensive abilities. So there's no there's no awareness about whether he can play in a four. So automatically, they have strung their carts to managers who play a three at the back system. You know, their main centre-back signing, Christian Romero, would be torn apart in a two because of his recklessness. Richarlison hasn't had a single Premier League goal this season. Uh, Eve Basuma can't get on the pitch. And that's just this summer. You go back to last season 
And who did they sign? Who did they sign? They signed Brian Heal for 25 million euros and Eric Lamella. And he's already back on loan at Sevilla. Like, the the none of, I'm looking at these players and thinking about what Antonio Conte's values are as a manager and what he likes. And they've signed one defender and they're still rolling out Davison Sanchez at centre-back and Eric Dyer at centre-back. And you have to look at that and go, how much of that is down to Conte and how much of that is down to the structure? I think it's both. Both are... You either need to go one of two ways. You either need to give the manager full reign of the transfers and allow him to build the squad in his image, or you need to have a technical director who is going to give a coach the tools, and that's that, rather than what seems to have happened, which is this mishmash of some signings that are so obviously for Antonio Conte and some signings that are obviously for the club. You know, Dan Juma was, hasn't even p- played for Spurs yet, I don't think, and he's come out and said that that was a signing that the club wanted to make, a six-month loan for no... like. There is no lined up thinking at this football club. They aren't going anywhere anytime soon. If there was lined up thinking at this football club, Hyungman Son would have been sold 12 months ago. They wouldn't have they wouldn't have given him a new four-year deal when he's 30 years old and is now very, very steeply on the decline. I just I yeah. Spurs are a very and I have a like obviously because my best mate's a Spurs fan. It's a very weird conversation to have because they have never, ever been lined up and they got lucky with Poch hitting at the right time with a golden generation and they seem to think it's easy and it's really, really not. Yeah, I think um, I think they're just an example, as you say, of, of a lack of joined up thinking and, and as we talked about before, George, like sustainability in football in terms of decision making and all that sort of stuff is is... It's the only way. And I think if you look at any successful project, any successful team, what they have done realistically, if they've not coalesced around one man, which often does happen, they've certainly coalesced around one idea. And there's got to be one idea. There's got to be one philosophy that you go, here is how we want to play football. Every decision from the training methods to the nutrition, to the coaching staff, to the recruitment, to the people in the canteen is based on that and based on those values and this idea of you know you know what is a football club and who is what are Arsenal values what are Tottenham values and stuff and, and ultimately they are they're a mishmash as Brad put it and and I think it's just another example that you have to have alignment and they don't and once you don't have it that it's a, it's a ticking time bomb um, and I suppose also something Brad Brad and I have said been saying as well is that this isn't some hit piece on Spurs or trying to be funny or something, but they are like, they haven't won a trophy since 2008. Okay, they got to a Champions League final, but I don't understand how they have this sort of perception of them. It's it, like this, this idea that they're in the big six or they're in the top six. And I'm not trying to, I'm genuinely not trying to be funny. I'm just trying to say, if they didn't have Harry Kane, they would not have the stadium that they have. They would not have the manager that they had. They're stuck between, in my opinion, the big clubs and the mid-table clubs and they don't quite fit in either category and they've got a bit of sort of star power which pushes them into the top six but otherwise like once those guys go what are they they're a they're another villa they're another whatever like so i think it's bizarre to expect this team who aren't don't have some kind of huge pedigree to be this perfect team so they they're almost like they don't know no one knows how to judge them what is success at spurs 
Sorry to cut across and jump in on that. If they aren't careful, they will be Villa. Because there's no draw. Who, no one's go. They, they had Champions League football. Biggest player that they pulled was Richarlison. There is no allure around that club. If they don't win, win quickly and set themselves up for success in the future, they will be Villa. They will be Nottingham Forest. Because big stadiums, that it's the one thing in football Arsene Wenger got wrong. He really thought that um, match day revenue would be a much, much bigger influence in how successful a club could be and run. He definitely didn't predict the the, the movement in terms of TV money and TV rights and such. Um, having a big stadium means fuck all. They can't even fill their big stadium. Like they will, but they they'll be a small club, and they they and if they, they if they don't get on it, they really will because we've seen bigger teams fall to lower heights. Think of Blackburn; they've won the Premier League. They're in the Championship. Think of Bolton. Think of all of these clubs that were stalwarts and getting to to Europa League semi-finals, and and they can't even get out of League One. I really think that when you talk of Spurs, the one issue that I've got is I really harp on that one point that you made, Alex, is they really haven't been successful. They have competed, but they haven't been successful. That is a key part when it's I'm not even funny again. We have all tried to preface this, but it, it really reeks of somebody having run runner up in the student council in their high school. And saying they're going to be CEO <laughs> of a major company. It's twenty years later. It's twenty years later. They're at the reunion. They're going. Oh, do you remember that time I was I was yeah. runner up for like school and, president? And, I work at McDonald's like, now, but and you're like that was a great time to compete, but I didn't win anything back then, and I'm certainly not winning in life right now. And it just it has the same kind of feelings. And then when you start to really look at it, I don't want to fix Spurs, but even what made them. Um, quote unquote successful. And the only reason I'm saying that is because the media keeps doing it. I have a real big problem with calling Spurs successful. They're factually not. I really want to get that point across. They're not (laughs) successful. They are people that have said we did our best. And that is essentially where I have a problem with because there's plenty of teams that do their best. But appointing Jose Mourinho, by the way, spending 131 million pounds on 10 players, then Nuno, 57 million pounds on five players. And then Antonio Conte spending 192 million pounds on 14 players. Guys, the maths on that is a total spend of 380 million pounds in addition to spending nearly 29 players of an overture. Guys, that is enough to erase a squad in an era, by the way. And that is enough money to cause change. What the problem is, who you entrusted with change, who were the big decision makers? What was your philosophy? Because they are a total odds with what a supposed Spurs is. What are Spurs? They are supposed to be a young side filled with domestic talent that is playing an attractive form of fo- football based on possession that they try to be competitive with. That is the minimal line you can even acknowledge Spurs can do. How do Jose Mourinho, Nuno, and Antonio Conte fit that mold? They don't. Why is it that they have spent nearly 400 million pounds, by the way, in the same time that Mikel has been manager, and there weren't too many calls by the time, by the way, that Arsenal fans wanted Jose Mourinho. They wanted a lot of these players, Antonio Conte. And why is it that Arsenal's rebuild is so different from Spurs, despite spending nearly equal expenditure, and by the way, nearly equal player overture? I'll tell you why. Because Mikel Arteta addressed the true problem of the toxicity at Arsenal. And Spurs never did. Spurs never addressed how toxic their backroom staff, their mentality, their culture was. And when you have a look at it, that Arsenal get mocked for firing all their scouts, by the way, and having a Nolan partner lawyer job to come in in 2020 and replace all that. And then you look at the success 
of a lot of the scouts, and you find out today that, you know, a lot of those scouts that got replaced got promotions, by the way. Jason Ado is going to be lining up with, you know, Edu. You know, uh, Ellis, who was a, a kind of poaching scout from Fulham, was promoted to kind of head of over uh, youth scouting today. That is the difference, really, when you compare between Spurs and Arsenal. The backroom staff, they never had a Marcel Lucassen with Per, who defined a Spurs way of playing, quote-unquote. And I know that a lot of people find that PR, but no, it isn't. It is a framework. We were very clinical in how we achieved our success, by the way. And as much as people want to mock the process... Spurs never had a process. It was built on immediate success, trying to capitalize on the fact that they got excited to be near the top. And it was never based on success. It was based on, I feel like I am the girl at the tea party that got my hair done recently, and I should be there. But you never were popular. And I don't mean that facetiously. I just feel that there's far too much, uh, you know, kind of good credit that they built over the bank by just being a good enough team when every other team has had to be great. That is a problem. And until you face that fact, you're never going to change. George, you're bang on apart from one thing. You said the only thing separating Arsenal and Spurs is uh, recruitment and all that sort of stuff. That and, what, 57 million trophies? (laughs) It's not even those. In Tottenham's golden era, like the best era of Tottenham in their history, they've they've not won a single trophy. We won three FA Cups. God, they're ten pot. Like they it's, are ten and, pot. and they have spent they have spent over a hundred million euros every season since 2019-20. Like this season they spent 175 million euros. And that doesn't even contemplate the fact that they still owe Juventus something like 40 million euros for Kudasevsky. Yikes. Right. We've got to finish there, but we have just got time. We've, I th- uh, yeah, I no, we think do. we can do it. I think we have this. George, yeah. do we have time? Do we? We have time. Have you got to go okay. save some lives? Or yeah, it's got to save some. <laughs> for a little just bit. Just take the screen. Be doing the CPR. Just take the camera with you for a little bit of Arsenal trivia. Last time out, the theme was Miles Lewis Skelly, and the question was, what squad number? I'm coming to you, by the way, George, for the theme. So have a think about that. What squad number does Miles Lewis Skelly have right now when he trains with the first team? What squad number does Miles Lewis Skelly have right now when he trains with the first team? No looking it up. It has to be a high number. Something like 87. 63. 63 and 87. Yes. 81. Uh. And... Your theme for this week was Irish or Northern Irish players for Arsenal. Irish. Celebrating St. Paddy's Day. Or Northern Irish. I'm I not extended tr- it out to be Northern Irish because of Pat Rice. Um, Pat oh, Rice, Paddy. ex-Arsenal assistant manager and player, played what position for Arsenal? Pat Rice, ex-Arsenal assistant manager and player, played what position for Arsenal? And a theme, please, Geo. My man. A theme for Arsenal would probably be, um, let's find it. It has to be something uh, title title related. Um, okay. Um, let's do a theme based on uh, Just to be rounds. clear, at this point, I would be having a go at Brad for telling him that I was coming to him. <laughs> <laughs> 
hundred percent. Joe Pat Rice made over five hundred appearances for us. That's mad. Why are you looking him up, Brad? <laughs> whole point of Arsenal trivia is you don't know the answer. Oh, I didn't look at the answer. And we it learned... it was, it's just on the Google thing. And we As in, if you together. Google Pat Rice. Go on, Joe. If you were going to say grounds we won the Premier League out, we've done that already. Let's do another one. Okay. Um, how about um, let us do. Dum, 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 I do dum, have dum, a good one. Go on, Brad. <laughs> players who have technically won us the Premier League. So the pl- players who have scored the goal that's won the game. Love it. That's won us the Premier League. Love it. Uh, do you know what I'd love? Just because it'd be fucking brilliant. Last, it goes down to the wire. Last game of the season. Rob Holding comes off the bench and does a fucking bicycle <laughs> kick to win us the Premier League. And then just shaves his fucking head. Because who needs hair when you're that much of a fucking legend? <laughs> Serious question to close out the pod. The player you most want to score the goal that wins the title and the player you least want to score the goal that wins the title. Oh, I've got that. Player at least. He's Jorginho. <laughs> Like um, he's fi- he's fine, but it's just it's so mercenary. It's just so like oh, okay, fine. Um, yeah, player most Rob Holding probably... has Rob Holding has to be because it's my only agenda. If anybody knows, it's just Rob Holding <laughs> is probably my only player agenda that I've got left in the squad. So I can't have him uh, uh, scoring oh, the last goal and El Nenny on of... crutches. Oh. El Nenny on crutches. <laughs> An El Nenny Thundercun on crutches would be. Oh. Um, no, it's got to be Saka. Saka's got to score it for me. Yeah. If he scores the goal that wins us the Premier League, I uh, I saw this on TikTok actually, and I think I might steal it. Like if if it's like a, a, a like ninety seventh minute, I would consider getting that little timestamp tattooed because that's the moment I just lost my life. Like fucking hell. Um, um, what do we say we do if we win the league I'm, I, I've got to remake that Zinchenko video you're getting a different knock tattoo aren't you Brad no that's that's Alex oh, that, no, that's oh, not that's, Alex that's George that's I'm George. getting an Arsenal tattoo <laughs> George is getting a different knock tattoo <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know what I do want a Hayland player to score the goal I am convinced yeah. on that yeah. I would love Bukayo Saka but it has to be Hale and so Emil mm-hmm. um, you know buddy come back yeah, um, do you know what I'd yeah. love it for Emil as well after the the year of troubles if he scored the goal that won us yeah. the Premier League or least, a Kieran least, Tierney least. or one of one of the one of the injury plagued players that people yeah, have said yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. way that they can contribute and they must go yeah. yeah, how about Tommy Asu after my slander? Reese Nelson. <laughs> Reese Nelson. That'd be another Reece one. Another like the one. forgotten star boy if he Oh boys. Playing for a contract happen. even. Yeah. Sounds like he's gonna get nah. it. Well, well, right, boys. Pleasure as always. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Thank you to all of you who are subscribing, supporting us, supporting us on Patreon and all that stuff. We really appreciate it. Uh, the love is much, much appreciated. Thanks for listening. Keep it different, Knock. And we'll see you later. Peace. Peace. Thank you so much for listening to the Different Knock, an Arsenal podcast. Please hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using. If you'd like to support the Different Knock, you can find us on Patreon and buymeacoffee.com. We're on all social media at DiffKnock. Thanks.
Social Podcast Network.